Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, lovely to see you. I bring you greetings from sisters and brothers in Christ in England. Thank you for arranging the rain. I feel really at home in, in all of this. And what a wonderful place to come to. There's a real sense of the Spirit at work here. Just in the, in the few minutes that I've been here this morning, uh, it's great to hear that everything that is going on and a real sense in the worship of the Spirit being in the room on this day of Pentecost. So thank you for the invitation uh, to be here and for those who've made it possible for me to be here. I'm grateful. Um, the last Washington I visited was back in November, and it was Washington, D.C. And I went to a, an event, a privilege to be part of an event, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where um, this window, at least if the... I, I can't use the PowerPoint. Um, I'm a physicist. You probably know that school definitions of science go like this. If it moves, it's biology. If, it's if it smells, it's chemistry. And if it doesn't work, it's physics. <laughs> I'm basically a physicist, but that's the right slide now. You all still with me after confusing you? Great. So I'm in Washington, D.C., National Cathedral, where there's this window. This is the space window in the cathedral, a piece of stained glass, and right in the middle of that window is a piece of moon rock, brought back by the astronauts from Apollo 11 and presented to the cathedral, and it's in a little vacuum in its own little glass bubble in the middle of the window. And I was invited to be part of an evening arranged by the Ignatius Forum to talk about our future in space. Now, they had a green room, it was called the vestry, and it was quite small. And I walked into the green room, the vestry, to find my fellow panelists there. Let me tell you who they were. There was someone called, uh, that's done it again. I wonder if we can have the next slide. That's great. There was someone called Jeff Bezos. Have you come across him? I think he has a small delivery company called Amazon that sometimes delivers people in space. He was there with six of his entourage, all PR people there. And then there was Averill Haynes, who's head of uh, uh, US national security, uh, the CIA and things like that. She had an entourage of security people with her. And then there was the uh, Harvard physicist, Avi Loeb, uh, who was there with a fly-on-the-wall documentary crew because he's very famous in that he's talked about um, whether an alien space object has passed through our solar system. And then um, uh, Senator Bill Nelson couldn't be there. He was there on video because he heads up NASA, and NASA had a little rocket launch uh, that was happening the next day. So I, I wandered into the vestry, and uh, my, my only entourage was my coat. That's all I had with me. Um, 
And we spent the evening talking about our future in space. We talked about whether at one point heavy industry might be in orbit rather than on the surface of the Earth. We talked about unidentified aerial phenomenon, UFOs to us normal people, and whether there was other life elsewhere in the universe. We talked about our fascination as children with Star Trek, and we all wanted to get into space, and Bezos still hasn't phoned me up to ask me to go into his rocket. I think actually they'd need an extra booster rocket to get me into space, uh, by the way. And there were big questions there in the cathedral. Big questions which, not just in our future in space, but within the kind of culture and world that we live in, is always part of it. Questions like, how do we make the world a better place? From an elementary school in Texas, to heavy artillery invading Ukraine, to the environmental damage that we cause on the planet, how do we make the world a better place? That's a big question for most of us. In the 1960s, Gene Roddenberry, in creating Star Trek, believed in the myth of human progress. The myth of human progress is that science and technology and education will deliver us into utopia. And Roddenberry believed in that, so on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, all different races would come together in the common quest of exploring space. One or two problems with Klingons, but apart from that, we'd be okay. The trouble is, of course, that the myth of human progress in the 20th century became a nightmare. Because although science has given us wonderful gifts, not least vaccines in the face of pandemic, that science also led to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Science and technology can be used for different purposes. And it depends on attitudes. Uh, the great prophet of the modern world, Lady Gaga, once said, love is a brick. You can build a house with it, or you can sink a dead body with it. <laughs> you see, what you do with technology depends on the motive. As a former British Prime Minister Gladstone once said, selfishness is the great curse of the human race. How do we make the world a better place in a world dominated by selfishness. And then the next question, the big question, is what's the deeper purpose to the universe? And sometimes this is expressed in science fiction. Uh, by the way, I've not watched the new Star Wars series yet. I'm excited by it. I, you see, I'm a nerd. I like both Star Trek and Star Wars, both. And uh, uh, you know that in um, Star Wars, um, big themes of hope, good and evil, 
um, and that sense of the force. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first movies, devout Roman Catholic, once was coming out of church after mass, and a Star Wars fan came up to him and said, uh, may the force be with you. And Sir Alec, without thinking about it, replied, and also with you. <laughs> he thought to himself, what a stupid thing to say. You see, Star Wars was not created for a new religion. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, George Lucas wrote this. He said, I put the force into Star Wars to say, think about this for a second. Is there a God? What does God look like? What does God sound like? What does God feel like? How do we relate to God? And as we'll talk about this afternoon, if you're still awake and you want to rejoin us, we'll talk about Stephen Hawking, another cosmologist, who are asking the big question about what's the purpose of the universe? Is there a deeper story? Is there a God? You find that both in science fiction and in science. So how do we make the world a better place? What's the purpose of it all? And in the midst of all of these discussions, what is God like? Now, many, many years ago, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Colossae. And uh, in prison, a young worker within uh, a church came to visit him. Sorry, he was in prison in Ephesus. That young worker was called Epaphras. And if you do have Bibles on your phone or open in front of you, uh, in verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The church in Colossae was growing in love in the Spirit, one of the great marks of Christian community. Now, we don't know a lot about the church in Colossae. We think it was probably planted during Paul's prodigious evangelistic ministry in Ephesus, where from 11 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the hall of Tyrannus, Every day for two years, Luke says, Paul argued the kingdom of God. He discussed the kingdom of God. That was worse than having David Wilkinson here for the day. Every day for two years, Paul preached the kingdom. And it's probable that during that time, a number of folk from neighboring Colossae heard the gospel and went back and planted a church. And there they grew in love in the spirit. But there was also something going on in Colossian, in the Colossian church, which was quite worrying. And we call it the Colossian heresy. And we call it that because, to be honest, no one quite knows what it is. And so if you want to do a PhD in theology, you can do it on the Colossian heresy. Because many people have done it on the Colossian heresy, and we still don't quite know what it is. Some people think it was certain cults, Greek cults, 
coming into the church and saying, you need to know our secret bits of wisdom and then you'll be truly right with God. Other people think it was certain Jewish groups saying, unless you go through certain ceremonies, then you'll be right with God. And Paul realizes that whatever is going on, something fundamental is struggling in the Colossian church. And the fundamental question that Paul presents to this group of Christians is, how do you view Jesus? Because Paul worried that people who said, in order to be true Christians, you need this little bit of secret knowledge, or you go through this particular secret ceremony, that undervalues who Jesus is. And so Paul begins with this lovely passage that Rick read to say, I want you to understand again who Jesus is. And if you understand who Jesus is, then see Jesus as the one who is supreme in all things. And if you understand that, then that's the foundation, the basis, the framework, the energy of the Christian life. Don't get too worried about all of these other things around. But not only that, that if you understand who Jesus is, there is an answer to what is God like, what's the purpose of it all, and how do we make the world a better place? So that's what we're going to look at this morning from Scripture, from this passage. And the first thing is this. Jesus is supreme in revelation. Jesus is supreme in showing us what God is like. I don't even know the story of a little girl who was painting a picture of God. Her mother came up to her and said, what are you doing? Little girl said, I'm painting a picture of God. But said her mother, no one knows what God looks like. They will, said the little girl, when I've finished my picture. I mean, what is God like? If you stay on this afternoon, I'll tell you that there are 100 billion stars in each of 100 billion galaxies. The universe is a pretty big place. If God created such a universe, he must be infinite. You and I have finite minds, particularly early on a Sunday morning. How can a finite mind ever understand an infinite God? But says the Christian, what if this infinite God decides to reveal himself to the finite mind in a way that the finite mind can understand? Christ is the image of the invisible God. So in answer to the question, what is God like? Christians respond, He's like Jesus. One of my favorite disciples of the New Testament is Philip. Philip, I don't know if you know people like Philip. Philip is the type of guy who's always two minutes behind the conversation. Have you ever met anyone like that? Rick, anyone at church meetings a bit like that? 
you get through to agenda item eight, and someone puts their hand up and says, by the way, can we go back to agenda item five a little earlier? That's Philip. So Jesus has been talking to the disciples, and Thomas has said, we don't know the way, and Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's great. But Philip's behind the conversation. So Philip then goes, Lord, show us the Father. Can you imagine the other disciples? Shut up, Philip. He's just told us he's the way, the truth, and the life. Weren't you listening at the time rather than playing on your iPhone? Um, Jesus replies to Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, God has revealed God's self in many and various ways, but supremely in Jesus by becoming a human being and living amongst us. And indeed, Paul will say, it's more than just an image. Jesus, well, Paul uses the phrase, in him the whole Godhead dwells bodily. I mean, it's an incredible thing. I, I'm a professional theologian. I have no idea how that happens, but I believe it. I experience it. I've seen it. That as I encounter Jesus, I see what God is like. Following the death of Professor Hawkins, there was a, um, a conference in Jerusalem on the legacy of Stephen Hawkins in quantum gravity, which I, I was at, and... Uh, it was in a conference center in Jerusalem, and over lunch, a world-class physicist said to me, he said, David, you're a Christian. He said, um, why do Christians believe that God is good? He said, when I look at the world, I see wonderful things in science, but I also see disease and evil, injustice and war. Why do Christians believe that God is good? Well, there was a big window in front of us in the restaurant and it looked over the old walls of Jerusalem. I was able to say, Christians believe that God is good because 2,000 years ago, someone lived and walked in these streets. He taught about the love of God and the kingdom of God. He was put to death on a cross for our forgiveness and new start and God raised him from the dead on Easter day. And that's why Christians believe that God is good because we've seen it in Jesus. And he paused and he said, do you know, he said, no one's ever told me that before. That's why Christians believe that God is good. So if you've just come to church or you're listening in online and this Christian thing is quite odd to you or new to you and you want to know what God is like, Christians simply humbly say, Look at Jesus. Read the stories about him. Talk to people who know him in their own lives, and you'll find out what God is like. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're going through that set of circumstances in life where you're thinking, what is God like? After all, I, I mean, bereavement, depression, depression, 
losing a job, family difficulties. You thought God would make everything great, but in fact, the reality of life is very different. And you find yourself asking the question, what is God like? There have been moments like that in my life where I've simply had to go back to Jesus. And despite the circumstances, see that in Jesus, that God is good. A God of mercy and truth and justice. And it's in those moments that I need to trust that Jesus is supreme in revelation. That's the first thing. Are you still with me? The second thing is this. Jesus is supreme in creation. Jesus is supreme in creation. And this is where Paul gets so excited and carried away. He's a bit like the speaker who has 40 slides, but only time for 20. Have you ever been to a lecture like that? And Paul goes boom, 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 boom. So he says, the image of the invisible God, verse 15 then, he's the firstborn of all creation. That means that he has priority in creation. Not that he's born, but he's the firstborn. And for him all things, and in him all things were created. Verse 16, on earth and created. Paul's getting a, a, a steam here. He's got momentum. Um, things visible and invisible, everything, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, by the way. Uh, verse 17, sorry, end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. So in him, for him, through him. And then pause, Paul pauses. <laughs> in him all things hold together. Do you get that sense? That Christ is both the origin and the one in whom all things hold together. That's a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Each of those is a galaxy typically containing about 100 billion stars, each as large as our own sun. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, Rick, I know you're an expert in astrophysics. You'll know. So it's about 100 billion. So how many stars are there in the universe? Very easy. All you need to do is multiply 100 billion by 100 billion. And the answer is a lot. <laughs> That's something like the grains of sand on the beaches of the world. In him all things were created. Isn't that a sense of awesomeness about God? I, I loved the worship. I loved the songs. When I was growing up as a Christian, we sang songs that didn't have an awful lot of imagination. One of our favorites was called, What a Mighty God We Serve. And it simply went, What a mighty God we serve. 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 There wasn't a lot of imagination to those lyrics. But that stayed with me. Yes, he is my Jesus, my savior. But what a mighty God we serve. 
when we come to worship, we rejoice in the intimacy of the Holy Spirit moving amongst us, but there's an awesomeness as well, isn't there, of encounter with God. What a mighty God we serve. And do you notice that phrase in verse 17, in him all things hold together? Or another translation is, in him all things cohere. That's very important for me as a scientist because I study the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the things by which the whole universe holds together and coheres. And what Paul is saying is that the heart of the coherence of the universe is not just a mathematical theory, it's a person. In Christ, all things hold together. And that means if you're here this morning or you're joining us online and you're an engineer or you're a scientist, you're studying uh, science or engineering or technology, you work with the laws of physics, sisters and brothers, you are following a Christian vocation because you can only do science and engineering technology because in Christ all things hold together. I mean, I, I go to some churches, I'm sure this isn't one of them, where if a young person says, the Lord's called me to go to Bible college, often the church will go hallelujah, come to the front and lay hands on them and you give them a big check to help them with all their fees at Bible college because they're going to preach the gospel. But I wonder if a young person in a congregation says, I'm going to university to do chemistry. Whether we say hallelujah, bring them to the front, give them a big check, lay hands on them, pray for them. Because that's a Christian vocation. Yeah? So if you're an engineer, a technologist, or a scientist, if you're studying science at school or at university, we want to say hallelujah. We thank God for you. You are following a Christian vocation. Now, one or two of you might be sitting there thinking, well, I hope this afternoon he's going to talk about science and theology. How can you believe both the kind of, you know, all the big bang stuff and, well, let me give you a sneak preview. You see, science and theology describe things in different ways, but just because they describe them in different ways doesn't mean that one has to be right and one has to be wrong. After all, we could say, why is a kettle boiling? Well, one answer is that the water uh, is experiencing heat. The heat energy is being translated to the velocity of water molecules. The velocity of water molecules increases. Eventually, bubbles are formed. That's why uh, water is boiling. But there's another way to answer the question, why is the water boiling? And that is to say this sermon has gone on far too long and we desperately need some coffee. <laughs> now, which is right and which is wrong? Actually, both are true. Probably as you listen to this, one is more important than the other, by the way. Um, so as a scientist, I rejoice in the way that science describes the universe, but in terms of the purpose, meaning, and value of the universe, that's to be found in Christ. What's the deeper story to the universe? In him all things were created and in him all things hold together. 
I'm with my third point. It's the final point. So don't worry, I'm not one of those preachers who has 57 points this morning. The third one is this. Jesus is supreme in reconciliation. Look at the passage again. He is the head of the body of the church. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. We understand the word reconciliation. It presupposes some kind of separation or conflict. If you and I have in a conversation and we walk out of the doors of the church and you go to the right and I go to the left, a separation forms between us. Our communication breaks down. God has intended human beings to be in close, intimate relationship with himself. But we've decided often to go our own way, causing ourselves to be separated from God. That's why, for many of us, God seems so far away. It's not that he's not there. It's simply there's a separation between us. And over the centuries, people have tried to bridge that gap through many and various ways, but supremely, there's only one way that's brought reconciliation as Jesus in his body takes into himself the pain and the awfulness of our rebellion and independence and takes that into himself. And there's a parallelism going on in the passage where Paul is saying, because all things were created in Christ, through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, all things can be reconciled. We have a much smaller church than this where I worship. My wife's the pastor, and uh, we often, uh, in the midst of worship, will just ask for whether the Spirit is saying anything um, to us. And I was preaching there the other day. They, uh, you know, let me out occasionally in my own church from time to time. Um, and um, just before the service, uh, a woman walked in. Uh, no one knew her. She turned out to be someone who had a deep sense of unforgiveness in her life. She'd done certain things earlier in her life that she couldn't forgive herself for, and she believed that God couldn't forgive her. And she came in, she was part of the worship, I preached, that didn't help at all, that's not unusual. And then we got uh, to a point where uh, my wife said, does anyone have a, a, a word that they feel the Lord is saying? Another woman on the other side of the church who had not met this woman simply stood up and said, the Lord wants someone to know that you are forgiven. In a moment, that woman's life was changed. As she suddenly heard the word of the Lord to say that even she could be forgiven. She hadn't believed it up to that point. But the Spirit spoke to her and said, even you can be forgiven. Paul is saying, there is no person, no place, no one who is beyond the reconciling work of God. And that includes me. And that includes you this morning. 
But this isn't just about individuals. This is about a God who wants to achieve reconciliation of all things. Two weeks ago, I went to a a memorial service for someone who died during the pandemic, early on in the pandemic. And it was in a Welsh fishing village, very small place, very small little hall, and there were only a few of us gathered. And um, it was for someone who I think was probably the most influential Christian of the 20th century. You won't have heard of his name. Now, I don't know who you feel the most influential Christian of the 20th century was. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Dr. King. I mean, all very influential. But the person we were giving thanks for was a man called John Horton. John Horton was an atmospheric physicist at Oxford University. And he built satellites which went into space and they sensed the temperature of the atmosphere. Do you know where I might be going with this? He then drew together over 100 scientists from over 100 nations into providing a report called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And under his chairmanship, in 1999, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change showed that our global warming was due to some of the gases that we were putting into the atmosphere. It was his work as a scientist that gave the basis for our understanding of the messing up of the environment that we've done. And John Horton was a Christian, a biblical Christian, who saw his science and his work on the environment as part of his Christian discipleship. He was so committed because he knew that God wasn't just interested in individuals, God was interested in communities and institutions and the very physical nature of the universe itself. He spent his life working with governments and oil companies in sometimes gray areas of compromise and difficult decisions because of his passion that Christ wanted to reconcile all things. Paul says, Christ is supreme in revelation. What is God like? Christ is supreme in creation. In him all things were created, in him all things hold together. Christ is supreme in reconciliation. Now for some of the folk in Colossae who were interested in some of these secret bits of knowledge or powers or angels or demons. Paul's argument is, don't get tied up with the minor details. Get the big picture. And you can know Jesus. And therefore, you don't need to worry about principalities and powers and all the rest of it. Once you see them through the lens of the supremacy of Christ, I'm a Star Wars nerd, 
I'm a Star Trek nerd. I'm also a roller coaster nerd. I love roller coasters. And in the northwest of England, there is a roller coaster called the Big One. Because it's big. And we used to live in Liverpool, and when the children were, were young, we used to go up to, Liverpool, uh, to Blackpool, where the big one is, with the grandparents in the car. Grandparents are very important for roller coasters because they look after the children while you go on the roller coaster. And it was one of those rare days in England when it was absolutely boiling hot. And we drove up to Blackpool and we went to, to the theme park and we couldn't find anywhere to park. And we drove round and round this place. And uh, um, I mean, my wife is a lovely Christian person, but the temperature in the car started to rise. Um, there was a parking space back there. No, there wasn't. I couldn't, all the rest of it. Grandparents being grandparents were chipping in with lots of useful advice from the back seat. Eventually, we found a parking space, which is about three miles away, seemed to me. By this point, my wife and I weren't talking to each other. Kind of got the children and the grandparents. We went, did the walk, arrived at the roller coaster, left the children with the grandparents, queued up for the roller coaster. We still weren't talking to each other. Got on the road, and it's one of those classic roller coasters where you go up the first hill, get to the top. Now, um, if you ever go to England, do you ever go to Blackpool? You ever go on the big one? You ever get to that top of the first hill? Most people look down at the first drop. Let me just say this to you. Don't look down at the first drop. If you look over your shoulder, you will see so many parking spaces, you will not believe it. <laughs> I mean, parking space after parking space after parking space. When you see things from a different perspective, it doesn't take the problems away, but you see things from a different perspective. Jesus is supreme in revelation. Jesus is supreme in creation. Jesus is supreme in reconciliation. You see things in a different way. In England, there was a great preacher called Charles Simeon. He preached for many decades in Cambridge. And towards the end of his life, one of his final sermons was on this passage from Colossians. By that stage, he was an elderly gentleman. And as Simeon read this passage, it said that his, his elderly bodily body visibly straightened in the pulpit as he drew himself to his full height. As he read, verse 18, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And then he paused for a moment, and he said that he might come to have first place in everything, that he shall come to have first place in everything, that he will come to have first place in everything. It's said by those who were there that morning that that simple piece of pulpit rhetoric 
in that elderly, old, holy man had a profound effect on all those who were there because they suddenly realized that if Christ has first place in everything, the challenge is, does he have first place in my life? In the way that I use my resources, in the way that I live my life, in the way that I'm committed to reconciliation with my neighbor and with my community, with the world, does Christ have first place? And here on this day of Pentecost, sisters and brothers in Christ, whether you're here in the building or whether you're online, do you sense the Spirit speaking to you this morning? What's the Spirit saying to me and to you? Because the Spirit leads us to proclaim and live the Lordship of Jesus amongst us. And as we come, to take bread and wine and remember Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us. The question, is he Lord? Let's pray together. Come Holy Spirit as you move amongst us. For those of us who need healing, Lord be supreme in that. For those of us who need forgiveness, Lord, be supreme in that. For those of us who live our lives as disciples, we pray, Lord, that you would be supreme in our lives. And particularly, Lord, for those who are searching for you or questioning, Lord, meet us now, we pray, in the breaking of bread and the sharing of wine. In Jesus' name, amen.